You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Good morning. I hope you're all well. My name is Dharmendra Kanani. I'm Director of Strategy and the moderator for this first session. Uh, a warm welcome to all of you. We seem to have had problems with traffic this morning, so lots of people, that's why we're late, it's like in starting. Um, we have had a problem, I, I believe, uh, in central Brussels. Um, it's a very, it's a, a very warm welcome to this annual summit. Um, those of you who've been here before know that we uh, try very hard to have an engaging conversation about the matter at hand, especially something which has uh, ferociously um, kept our attention, not least in terms of weather conditions. I mean, yesterday, if those of you who are in Brussels would realize it was like a summer's day in October, um, and you'd never imagine the weather uh, of that kind that we experienced yesterday. Just another indication of the potential climate change imp impact that we're, we're, we're undergoing. Um, we have a, a very interesting, uh, illustrious panel uh, for discussion, but just by way of introduction, um, I want to say a few words. We, we know there's a, there's a price around clean energy and there's a prize around that too. But fundamentally, as we've said um, in, in this particular session, cooperation uh, and collaboration is key. Fundamentally, this issue is a matter of supply and demand. I mean, there's no rocket science in that. It is about supply and demand at a fundamental level. It's how we engineer the forces of supply and demand that matter and that count. We've had a historic commitment um, um, to do something around climate change. But fundamentally, that commitment, that agreement, didn't really take account of the infrastructure that's required to make it happen globally or regionally. It didn't take account of the kind of shock absorb, had no shock absorbers associated with it in, in terms of what would happen if you had a market crash? What would happen if geopolitics went a, sit a certain way? What would happen if America decided to leave, for example? None of those considerations were taken into account when a jubilant global community decided, you know, and quite rightly so, that actually we have an agreement to do something on climate change, but we didn't think deeply about the long-term consequences of such an agreement. And fundamentally, we've seen a number of things happen in the past 18 months which have created the shock which the agreement doesn't have absorbers for, not least the Trump effect, not least the geopolitics that have happened across the globe, not least what would happen in terms of uh, uh, Europe, in terms of Brexit and the kind of voting patterns we've experienced. So, in effect, we need to think deeply um, and broadly around collaboration and cooperation in a different way. And I suppose this session is asking that fundamental big question, is that, which is, how do we step up a gear when we think about where we've come from, we know there's been a real sea change in number of ways in which countries and communities have behaved. We know that renewables has entered and penetrated the marketplace in a way we never imagined before. But we still know that oil and its price continues to be at a level and at a consumption level that's not shifting. 
We know China has suddenly become a major game changer in terms of renewables just in the past year. And if, if it goes ahead with the um, ETS, it'll fundamentally change carbon pricing globally. We know that. So a number of things have happened along the way. And we've kind of, I suppose, assumed that pricing and, and the kind of commitment that's been established within uh, the Paris Agreement are going to get us to the end of the road by either 2020 and 2050. And I just ask you to reflect on what's happened in the past 12 months alone. When we think about the weather conditions that we've encountered, not, not least what's happened not across the globe, my sense is, and perhaps those of you who are more expert uh, will realize this, is that the timeline perhaps that we've established for ourselves is not the one that we can live with, but that's a matter for discussion. Um, before I introduce and bring in the, uh, our panelists to discuss this issue of cooperation and stepping up a gear, um, I wanted to share with you some, some feelings, some views and uh, perceptions from um, citizens in Europe. We have a debating platform called Debating Europe, which reaches some 2.9 million people across Europe. And uh, we readily engage with them on matters of the day. And I wanted to share with you what some people have said around climate. So, <clears throat> if we... Are we there? Great. Here we go. <clears throat> I won't read them out, but they, they speak for themselves. Sorry, our panelists can't see the, see the, and they're gone. So just because the US will pull out of, of the Paris Treaty doesn't mean it will ignore climate change. The, yeah, the, yeah. Climate change will, oh, the Paris climate change deal was dead from the start because it was inefficient and it's gone now. Um, we try hard, never mind, but you get the sense. I suppose the, under, uh, the uh, underpinning uh, message there was a sense of cynicism amongst citizens around the quality of the deal to a certain extent and whether things will actually fundamentally change or not. Um, and others feeling that actually <clears throat> um, people pulling out won't necessarily mean that the, the, the train will stop. So firstly, Yvonne, can I turn to you? Um, you've been involved in a number of activities at a very senior level around this agenda. And, you know, you see up close and personal uh, in terms of Europe, how it's, how, it's, how it's kind of faring. From your perspective, how and why we, do we need to step up a gear in terms of collaboration, cooperation, or don't we? What's your, what's your, are you kind of, are you feeling optimistic about where we are at after the Paris Agreement? Shall I just try this? Yes. Good morning, everyone. Thanks a lot for having us. And I just wanted to congratulate Friends of Europe on having this majoritarian female panel, which must be a first. Thank you for saying that rather than me having to say it. Always get to get, good to get someone else to promote you. Fantastic. If we Thank could you. do a high five, the girls of us. Um, and that made me think just now of a comment by uh, Amina Mohammed, the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, when we were in New York for the General Assembly Week, when she said, well, climate 
and the CO2 emissions are certainly man-made, and there's no dispute to that, but the solutions will be women-made. And I thought that was excellent. <laughs> okay, great. Anyway, thanks for your comment. Sorry for that little uh, pitch. No. Um, we should be short. So as uh, in terms of a few opening remarks, I think um, for the European Union, as you said, we have been pretty active when it comes to climate change for many uh, decades already. Um, and when indeed... Uh, about two months ago, 12 months ago, there was the change in the, in, uh, in the U.S. administration. Of course, it did put a bit of a shock <laughs> in terms of, okay, rethinking where are we, what does this mean for the Paris Agreement, what does it mean for its implementation. And um, first of all, I think we realized, okay, we need to uh, have a clear reaction, which I think did happen. I mean, uh, certainly from the side of the EU and fortunately the rest of the global community as well. First of all, the point was to say, well, there is no such thing as renegotiating the Paris Agreement. Mm. Uh, 195 countries have signed up and still support it. So no renegotiation, but rather to be firm and, and active on implementation, I think was a very clear message. Um, the leadership of the EU in that, I think, was also uh, confirmed in the sense that we had top-level heads of state and government reconfirming this position and their contacts with other countries. We've had the EU-China summit. We had just a few weeks ago the EU-India summit. We, of course, have long-standing alliances with Africa, small island states, vulnerable countries. And this was very important indeed to kind of maintain very clearly this public positioning in favor of Paris and to reconfirm its, uh, its continuation. Um, then we did uh, pause, if you want, to think about, okay, what does this now mean in terms of uh, implementation? Mm. Do we need to change our approach? And I think the answer is definitely yes. Um, in the run-up to Paris, mostly, of course, uh, we had been participating in negotiations, government to government, uh, for many, many, many years. And I think what we saw, the difference that came from Paris, is really this change that it isn't just the governments. It's really all about, you know, other parts of civil society that have also become active and that were there in Paris to show their initiatives and, and to commit to certain things that they wanted to be implementing. And I think this has meant for us a, a big change. I don't want to say a, a sea change, but, you know, a big change um, because we had, and I think we have been in the EU uh, establishing our credibility in terms of implementation. I think we do have a good track record. We have our our decoupled emissions from, from uh, GDP growth. I think that is a very compelling example Gee. that we can show to, to other countries that this is feasible to go for a low carbon uh, transition. Um, implementation of our policies. We are, of course, currently in the process of finalizing those policies needed to uh, put in place in a legal framework are at least minus 40% reduction for 2030. We're almost there, so that's excellent news. Um, but I think then we, we really came to the conclusion that we do need to engage much more with those uh, non-state actors, as of course they're called in the jargon. We need to engage with cities there. We were already very active. I see Ero at the very back of the room. Uh, the confident of mayors, we have been always very active. And the cities are really testing things, how to put together things about clean transport, uh, digitalization, uh, <coughs> energy efficiency, uh, renewables, of course, as well. So this is really showcasing concrete solutions. And we need to be very active on that because the more you can showcase concrete solutions, the more people will realize, aha, uh -huh, this can be done. But I think uh, <clears throat> there are many other parts of, of society that we need to engage with. And this, for us, is a little bit of a new, uh, a new element. We have decided we will be working uh, with those uh, partners in the G20 context, because they, of course, cover the large chunk of emissions, 80% of global greenhouse gas emissions. 
And we have been, and I think we have a colleague from China here, so we, we can maybe mention that we have been already for many years working together with China to exchange basically experience, to show, okay, what choices did we make? How did we engage with stakeholders? And this is what we want to continue doing, to work with countries, but also their non-state actors. And this is, of course, what we'll do also with the U.S., even though the administration is now... Okay, I see can, you, I, can, I, can I interrupt yep. you for a second? And I'm sorry to interrupt Don't worry. you. People in the audience will be forgiven for saying that all sounds great, yeah. right? But in terms of facts and data about the, the distance that's being traveled currently, when they know mm -hmm. what's not happening, what's your sense? Are you optimistic about the fact that as a block and in terms of in individual member states and collectively, are we doing enough on this agenda on a measurable basis? Well, I think measurement has always been Europe's strength in a way. I mean, we've started, we've built up monitoring, reporting and, uh, and verification. So that is certainly there. And I think it does help to see, okay, what the policy we're putting in place, are they delivering? And this kind of helps to then step it up. Um, I have to say that I know Europe is often also criticized for not being, you know, uh, further advanced, for not having a higher carbon price, uh, what have you. But I think we have to look at the European reality. We're still a Europe of 28 member states, uh, albeit 27 probably in the not too distant <coughs> future. Um, and, and there are political realities that need to be taken into account. I think what is interesting also is the diversity in Europe, because I have the Netherlands next to me. So mm. uh, there are certain preferences or priorities that can be put forward and, and, and pursued in certain member states. I think we all know Germany, what they did on renewables. So yes, there is the common approach at EU level, but there are niches also of kind of um, trying certain technologies mm. or trying certain approaches, which gives it a very rich uh, overview in Europe. And well, we, we do need to do more, but I think actually what I was trying to say before is that this private sector involvement kind of puts the pressure on the governments also to continue looking at, can we do more? Is the cost coming down? Should we be adding up our, our ambitions? So I think I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, yes. Do you, do you get a sense, I mean, if you think about the ordinary punter that might look at what's happening, you know, whether in a, they're in a wildfire or the summer, having temperatures they've in there as a millennial, let's say, not me, but as a millennial will think, my God, I've never known it so hot. And we've experienced such diversity of climate change mm -hmm. across Europe and the world. And we know it's been probably the hottest year on record, and things don't appear to be abating. Do you get a sense, there's a sense, there's a emotional capacity for understanding the urgency of the situation amongst the people you're dealing with in Europe? Because my sense from looking outside and hearing the words is, that, no, it's almost as if like, there's no sense that we can't have business as usual. Mm -hmm. It's almost urgent is the new normal, mm -hmm. is what I would say when we think about climate change, the urgent is the new normal. Yeah. Is there a sense of that from where you're sitting? Um, well, we're all looking at these uh, extreme weather events and it's of course extremely sad. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's, it's uh, too prone sword in a way, if you can say that, because the more you point people to these very devastating effects, you know, you, you, it's a kind of a doom scenario. And I'm not sure that is the most uh, promising way forward. I think actually what we're seeing today is about recognition of economic opportunities, that this is the transition that Europe needs and that probably the planet needs. Um, it is the fourth industrial revolution. It is about, you know, uh, people's livelihoods and also taking into account 
that the transition, of course, will have winners and losers, and how to, t how to do that, and to have a discussion about, okay, what are the new jobs? What are the new skills? It's, it's like the robots a little bit. So we do, you know, in our corner tend to say, well, see, we told you so, look at all these weather events, but um, whether that is the best way of, of uh, putting forward the urgency, I'm a little bit skeptical, uh, however sad it is. And of course, what it does point very clearly to is that it's the mitigation, the reduction of emissions is extremely important, but adaptation, unfortunately, will need to be done as well. And I think when you look at the forest fires in Portugal and Spain, this is all about adaptation. You can mm. no longer grow your forests like you used to do, or they will be just ravaged. Indeed. Okay. Marcel, can I turn to you? Um, you have a kind of particular, uh, particularly interesting vantage, but not that not, not that not, none of you, all of you don't. Of course, you do. But in terms of the role that you play, I'd be interested in understanding how, as a member state, you're dealing with this in terms of the ability to step up a gear in terms of cooperation uh, and collaboration, and whether that's state-led or is it just happening, which you can answer that question. But also, when you look outside across Europe, it would be really interesting to understand whether you think we're up to the game in terms of cooperation and whether it's happening to the level that you think should be. Uh, well, th those are several questions, actually. Indeed, and and yeah. I'm, I'm happy to follow up on Yvonne because uh, there are many things that I don't have to say anymore because that is, that is how Europe works as well. It's, it's an, an average of those 28 member states. Um, some of them are more ambitious, others less ambitious, but indeed all uh, on that path forward. Um, but, but you describe a situation that is also there, and that is a, a difference between uh, countries that do want to go fast and have the ability to go fast, and others that um, uh, do see the threats as well. And that, that is, I think, an, an interesting reality to, uh, to acknowledge. Uh, it's not necessarily because they don't see the, the threat of climate change, and, and, and you can uh, generalize this across the globe. Uh, it's sometimes also the, um, almost a fear of the change itself and, and what it will bring. We don't know exactly where we will land, what it will do to our own interests, what it will do to our way of living. Um, we, we have to learn along the way, and that is something that, that uh, if you have almost the luxury of doing that, it's, it's perhaps easier than when you have so much to lose. And, and that is a, uh, a reality that you see on a small scale in Europe and across the globe, of course, in, in, a, in a much broader scale. And I, I can just illustrate that by, um, and you, when you said you, I first thought that you were talking about me personally, because I have a, an interesting role as, as climate envoy Indeed, for, the, yeah. for the Netherlands. I, 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 I represent the Netherlands internationally when we talk about climate. But also, uh, I do represent climate in a way nationally. But on that international scale, uh, I recently went to uh, Lebanon to discuss with uh, the, the so-called members of the Cartagena Dialogue. That's, that's a group of countries that do want to take this a step further, that, that, that wants to embrace that, that ambition, that higher ambition. But we were in Lebanon, and Lebanon is a member of that coalition. But when you walked outside in, in, in the city of Beirut, you saw a city without any public transport. You saw not at all one piece of solar panels, or yeah, there was one field of solar panels that was a donation by another country, um, because Lebanon at this moment has other problems, and that is a, a reality as well. So that's why I deliberately use the term luxury, um, and that is why in the Paris Agreement, there is a, uh, one of the pillars is we should... Uh, collectively help those countries that uh, cannot have the same pace that I think we should have. 
So that is a kind of a balancing act that is uh, very important. And uh, with that, I would also like to ad address another issue that might be interesting for this discussion, is um, the kind of approach and the kind of language that you use in, in doing this. Uh, are you just saying, well, you should change? Or is it a different approach, saying, how can I help you to change? And that is, a, uh, for many, that's, that's a, also in government, that is a different way of, uh, of working. Um, and, and I think you refer to that yourselves in, in terms of the transition that we have to go through. It is really unprecedented. It is not only regulation. It is not only um, uh, telling others that they have to do it differently or taxing it. Or it is the, across the board, everything has to change. And that, that is the, the uncertainty that I, I mentioned earlier. But that is also the um, uh, that, that means that you even have to to get away from those stereotypes that were so helpful to you in the past. Mm. Um, it was very easy for people in in businesses to say, "Well, those governments uh, that, um, they don't they don't understand what we need," or NGOs saying, "All oil companies are in that box of evil." That is no longer the case. I, I bet that if I ask people here who is with the private sector. Um, even may, some half of the room may raise their hands. And that, is, that illustrates a point that um, in, in, in meetings like this, when, when we used to say, well, those are the usual suspects, the usual suspects of today are not the usual suspects of 10 years ago. There is a, a, a broad change going on mm -hmm. with others leading the change. So um, the old-fashioned paradigm that governments uh, prescribe and others um, uh, do the work, it is different. In the Netherlands, and, and I will stop there, we just uh, came to the end of a long period of negotiations leading into a government agreement. Uh, after the, uh, They broke the record of, of uh, those negotiations over 200 days, but they ended up, the new government, with an agreement that has Paris written all over it. Um, but it was demanded by the private sector. They said, can we have long-term strategies? Can we have a climate minister? Can we have a climate act? And that was not something that was made up by, uh, by those four parties that are now forming the coalition, mm -hmm. because they are bridging that old-fashioned left-right divide with <coughs> the old stereotypes coming with it. And they, they needed that time to bridge that gap, because it was almost in their DNA to be against each other. But they found out, hey, actually, climate action, there's a business case underlying it. So that, that is also a, a paradigm shift that is, is um, yeah, um, getting into people's mind and that takes time. Absolutely. And um, one might say that actually that's the Netherlands. You know, culturally, historically, you've always been better at doing certain things. It's like what people say about Scotland and the scale that, you know, you always are the test lab for different ways of working. And that's not to patronize the country in any way. But when you look outside as an envoy, envoy are you seeing, what are you, let me say, what are you seeing? If you're thinking ahead, right, to the next stages, the next steps of Paris, right? There's a, the Paris rule book coming up, there's a COP23, you've got the, the momentum's there. As you look ahead, if you are thinking about, when you, when you think about what's happened in the Netherlands, but actually when you look around you in your peer group, what are the things that you'd be actually wanting to highlight as you look ahead, given what, where we are right now? You mean in, in terms of, question, of the, of the change that is going on elsewhere? Yeah, absolutely. Not just because, I mean, this is not a case of a member state's not going to change its agenda on its own. What we need is 
collaboration and cooperation on a mega scale um, across Europe and beyond. Given what you know of what's happening elsewhere, what would you, what would you be kind of saying or thinking that needs to change? Um, that, that mutual level of understanding, and, and that is something that we have to change in as well. And, and, and you, you use the term patronizing, that is, I think, an old habit of the Netherlands as well, traveling around the world and telling others what to do. That has to change as well, because uh, all contexts are different, and, and we will, in a minute we will hear the situation in China, which is completely different than the situation in, uh, in Europe. But still, China is embracing those same goals and, and is looking its own path of, of transition. Um, and, and so there is an element in there of, of mutual understanding and uh, being open to others asking you questions. And uh, I think we, indeed we are lucky in the Netherlands, but still if you look at the numbers, and, you, and, and Yvonne was talking about indicators and measurements, uh, on those uh, lists of, of progression, uh, for example in renewables, the Netherlands is still at the bottom of the, of the table. So uh, we know that we have to do quite a bit as well uh, with our yeah, historical addiction to natural gas. Uh, so, so every country has its own challenges, and this, this is perhaps the challenge in the Netherlands. But at the same time, you, and, and you mentioned the private sector, there are very nice examples in the Netherlands of uh, private sectors who really made a, a big change. I sometimes use the, the, the example, and I did that yesterday to you, of uh, the Dutch State Mines. That is a company that many of you know by that same acronym, DSM. They don't have anything to do with uh, getting coal out of the ground anymore. They completely shifted to a new business model. Another one is, is Philips that uh, was known to sell light bulbs, but then the European Union, amongst others, said, well, we can't sell old-fashioned light bulbs anymore. They don't sell LED lighting. No, they sell the service of light, which is a complete turnover of their business model um, by managing light in your offices, in your homes. And, and uh, they feel responsible now for what they put in there. So that is a very interesting way of um, a new thinking. And they go over the globe. They are engaged in um, all kinds of councils and coalitions globally to, uh, to talk about it with others and help them make that same shift. So that, that is just a very concrete example of, of international cooperation, share ideas and help others to kind of um, uh, make that, that, that same transition. Okay. Let's come back to some of the points both of you raised actually with the audience in a moment. But um, Chung-Hwa, I want to turn to you. Um, <clears throat> You know, in this you know, in this very auditorium, you know, you know, years past, people have spoken about the fact that actually, if China doesn't participate in this agenda, we're lost. And actually, what we've witnessed is that you've almost kind of turned the page and become a game changer in so many ways. When you think about the stats, your you know, your investment and um, uh, bringing to market renewables surpasses anyone else in the world. I mean, you're a you know, you're a market leader in, in renewables. And if you do uh, introduce, um, you know, the uh, emissions trading system, I mean, you will fundamentally be a game changer in terms of carbon pricing, etc. Now, all of this also relies on a level of cooperation and collaboration, especially with one of the largest trading blocks, which is the EU, and given your significance. Give me a sense of what you think the current challenges are in actually sealing a proper deal between EU China and be as frank as you can be obviously in the confines of this room 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, before I answer your question, I want to pick up uh, certain, some interesting points, actually, from uh, Yvonne and uh, Marcel there as well. I think Yvonne made the case, uh, you know, made the point to say EU already made the case, made the case of decoupling. It is possible, you know, decoupling the energy consumption and uh, the emissions there and the growth. And the second uh, word actually is opportunity. And the countries, regions started to see the new technologies coming on board. If you're third or fourth industrial revolution and the people are capturing the opportunities there. The third point is really the fear. I think because the new technologies, they are new. There are many, many cases, they are very disruptive, creating all the uncertainties. And, uh, you know, you started to feel that, that here already. The fourth one is about the example of Beirut. Many developing countries do not have the infrastructure you have already. What do we do with them? And then Marcel asked the question, say, yes, rather than I tell you what to do. So you, you start to say, how can I help? Actually, I would maybe push you a little further. The questions in many parts of the world today is more like how we could work together to make the changes rather than say, how can I just help? Help is very helpful. But in the meantime, when you deep dive into the reality of many developing countries, it's more like you need to learn as well. So it's more like how do we work together? Then some other you know, higher level of ambitions, whatever. So that's a sort of interesting. The reason I mentioned those words because we in China live in those words as well, exactly. And the three points actually to highlight besides the you know, sort of momentum I captured here already. The first point is really the foundation laid. And uh, you have to acknowledge actually the success of the Paris Agreement to large extent is due to the collaboration of EU, China, US, and, and many others. Uh, without this, this leadership from the largest developed uh, you know, economies, we cannot possibly to get where we are today. The second success is really EU and China. The reason why China will be able to gear up is we we'll call it clean energy revolution is to a large extent contribute, attribute, should be attributed actually to the cooperation between EU and China. If you look at renewable energy, uh, the first one is energy efficiency, including the labeling, you know, products, energy efficiency, product labeling. If you look at renewable energy, we learned from you feed-in tariffs, all those sort of policy tools. If you look at, uh, you know, electronic waste recycling, we learned largely from you through your WEEZ, ROS, that sort of uh, regulations. And we learned, we copied you exactly, actually, the ETS. We're still trying to make things forward. In, if you look at it today, besides all those sectors, you know, if you have like battery technology, smart cities, blockchain, you know, internet, uh, plus all those sort of things, EU, China already been working very, very closely together. Interesting enough, the two examples are very closely linked. The reason why the world could shift dramatically from Copenhagen to Paris, you know, the two negotiations, is largely because, actually, countries like China started to have more confidence in terms of solution. Because just within that few years, seven, six, seven years, actually, China learned, so actually, renewable energy could play such a significant role could be scaled up so quickly and we have the solution and that is a you know you have to admit that's a very very important sector to do that so that's the first point the foundation already laid you know due to collaboration the second point I, I want to make is today urgently we need to make the case make the case in a way see now we have Paris agreement we have SDGs the UN 2030 agenda it's not just simply say we need to reduce emissions, but somehow we do need to look at the climate change challenges, mitigation, adaptation, the resilience in a bigger context. 
particularly for a lot of developing countries, we cannot just address the carbon issue. We have to figure out how to grow our economy differently, and China is already leading that. Leading that in a way, is particularly looking into the new technology opportunities there. We call third or the, for the new industrial revolution, and literally trying to figure out actually, yes, we do need to address the carbon issues, climate change challenges, but how to use that sort of lever to build up, you know, a new economy. Sometimes, you know, we call it new economy that has to be clean, green, smart, resilient, whatever, all the elements in it. And the national policies are coming together to really build that up. And this is the very beginning of the journey. And very, very urgently, China needs to make the case. In order to make the case, China needs more urgently than ever to work with the EU and many others to make it happen. Yeah. The, if, the you could turn to the, if you could turn to that point, because that, yeah. you know, in particular, I think people will be interested in what you think, what you see as the stakes in getting the relationship right. Uh, as I said, if you look at the glass, you know, it's half full, half empty. Mm -hmm. uh, I think actually our, my focus is more like on the full part. And then more importantly to figure out how to make it a full. And the EU-China, as I said, already been working very closely together. And uh, we, even today, the moment, actually, there are many, many projects we're moving forward. But how do we go beyond that? That's a very sort of tough question in a way. Uh, we sort of started the conversation in the room. So, you know, China and the EU, we signed quite a few number of agreements already over the years, including climate change issues sure. at the different mm -hmm. levels, cities, human private sectors, whatever, think tanks, NGOs there as well. But somehow, how to scale them up to the level that would really be able to meet the level of ambition we are hoping actually to achieve, that remains to be sort of answered. I do not think I have the, the real solution answer today, but somehow that's going to take more of the efforts. So one sort of hope, sign of hope, is, is that the new technologies today, the internet, you know, digitalization, suddenly actually makes it possible for more people engaged. So rather than just a government to government and at the top level, uh, or even city government level, we have the opportunity to get a younger generation involved more. When you get the millennials involved with the technology tools already available, I think that's going to fundamentally uh, to transform how the two parts of the, of the world are really working together. The, the, the point, actually, opportunity I want to add there as well, China's, uh, China started uh, this sort of Belt and Road Initiative. That offers probably the biggest opportunity and for EU-China, Euro-Asia partnership around those technologies and also really advancing the agenda throughout the world to many parts of the world because I think that's a win-win situation. If you look at the levers like that, you know, the political will is there, financing is there, the technology industry is actually the two sides already have. And if we could really work out this win-win scenario and bring that, spread that to the rest of the world, I think that's going to be really the biggest leadership the two parts of the world can lead. Okay, thank you for that. So, so you're, you're fairly optimistic in glass half full rather than glass half empty, which I, I, indeed I agree with you. But let's see what pe other people think in the audience, because I think there, there's the, the historic developments that have happened, but actually, as I, to my earlier point, the sense of urgency that we now need um, is palpable. But come, we'll come back to that because I, I want to move on yeah. to others. But you might want to keep that thought in mind and I may come back to you. Rich, can I turn to innovation? Um, here you are as a company that's made a lot of money, actually, um, in, in terms of the fact that you've had a technological breakthrough, uh, uh, an element that's you know, known for climate damage, you've turned into a precious raw material that's actually, you know, in terms of plastic, etc. So you've kind of 
you've kind of become a pioneer amongst others in using different types of technology to turn good, bad into good. What I want to understand, and I think people would say, is that what's, what, the, what, are the, what are the conditions for that to be aggregated in, in, amongst other players? Because actually, you doing that's great. You're benefiting at one level uh, financially, which shows that actually um, climate change, you know, ac activities and actions um, in a business model can pay if you're doing the right thing to address climate change. So you're, you're a business case in your, own, in, your own, in, your own, in your own sense. But what do we need to do from your perspective to actually have many more of you? Because we need many more of you across the globe. Thank you, uh, and thanks for the introduction. It's, you know, when I first entered this industry 10 years ago, mm -hmm. and to sit on a panel like this as the only private sector representative, when I, when I entered the industry, the private sector uh, representative would be sitting there shaking his head in disbelief at some of the things that were being said. I've sat here nodding in agreement with everything that's being said. And I think that suggests you know, a huge shift and a huge change, uh, not just in industry uh, or in our industry, but in industry in general. And what I'm seeing more and more uh, um, is more, more companies, more of the big uh, corporate um, international companies have really embraced, embraced the SDGs, number one. I think the SDGs, for me, were the big trigger in really getting the private sector involved, in fact, in, in many ways now, into a leading position in, in, in driving for, uh, uh, to address climate change. We're fortunate as a company. Covestro, may, many of you won't know, but we, you know, only, it was only just over two years ago we were part of uh, the big German company, Bayer. We were the material science part, and they decided to carve us out to float us through an IPO, independent company, and we've had a, a fantastic two years, very successful two years. But when somebody does that, it gives you the chance to press the reset button. And we completely changed our whole uh, view on life. We changed our values, we changed our mission and vision, and we're very much driven by um, clean tech agenda. You know, our products are the products that go into insulation, they're the products that go into light weighting of vehicles, uh, the, problems, the products that go into Philips' uh, new lighting systems, because you know, without some of these uh, new innovative polymers, a lot of this technology would not, not be available. They're also the, the, the materials that are going into the new generation of wind blades, uh, which increases the production time, which gives you double the length of, um, uh, of time needed in between maintenance. So it, it's contributing in a huge way in, into, into the clean energy sector. And there is a lot of, um, I'd say, th there's, there's a lot of scope for innovation in Europe. It's, uh, Europe really does put money into innovation. In fact, last night I was at... Uh, um, a Horizon 2020 event where we've just been awarded a grant to pursue uh, the use of CO2 and CO, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, uh, monoxide, from waste streams to create insulation foam. So substituting oil with the carbon from CO2 and CO. And this is a substantial grant, you know, under the Spire project, which is really, really valuable. The problem we have is what happens when we actually develop that technology. Mm. Where is it being implemented? And this is where I look to China and say, we develop a lot of technologies here in Europe. It is difficult to get it into the European market. A lot, a lot of the reason because of the maturity of the industries in which we're operating. But in China, these technologies are picked up straight away. 
So in a new process technology where we can take 40% of the energy out of the manufacture of chlorine, on day one, it was being implemented in China. It has yet to make big breakthroughs into Europe. So I think there's a lot of incentive Richard, here. what do you think that's about? Because we, we, that, it's a sorry tale, because we, and, you know, having kind of... Uh, done a num number of events, even with, you know, uh, Mudas, who's the commissioner for you know, R&D innovation. And it's the kind of old adage, we're really good at prototyping and doing stuff at the kind of seed level and coming up with technology. But when it comes to taking it to market, we suck. And it's, 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 I do not understand what it is about the market context because it's not a question of money there's loads of money in Europe for doing this kind of stuff we know that it's not a question of that but what is it that stops us from being successful in penetrating market um, market you know market uh, context in terms of the good being available is it because we're you know there's too many states involved or is it politics what is it no, I, I don't think it's because there's too many states because, I mean, ultimately, you know, it's individual states that, that have to, or member states that have to, you know, come up and, and, and make a lot of these, these decisions, whether it be through legislation, through incentive, whatever it is. I think one of the major problems we have is, as I said earlier, it's we're mature. You know, we have mature industries. If you take the automotive industry, if you take the chemical industry, I mean, to come up with a technology that then means that you have to reinvest in, 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 in your new capital. I mean, this, these are substantial in investments, and what do you do? Now, China has a different approach in a lot of ways. You know, it will stop projects, for example, on coal-powered fire sta coal power stations mm. and, and, and just leave them and move on to do something which it sees uh, is uh, more important going forward. But again, Marcel mentioned it as, uh, as well. It, the word change, you know, I've, I've described how we as one single company can, can actually inflict change upon ourselves. But change has to happen on a much wider scale. It's all very well for individual companies, and I'm seeing it in the chemical industry. I'm seeing huge change, uh, not just with us or with DSM or Axon Nobel, uh, who I would say are the leaders in, in, in driving uh, this industry in terms of um, to create a more sustainable industry, but I'm seeing it throughout. I'm seeing it in the oil majors. Uh, so the private sector is really embracing the SDGs. It sees the business case behind them, obviously, uh, but it is changing, and it's, it, it, I think I can see business models changing. I can see all sorts. I can see investment changing. Uh, I mean, nobody today is going to invest in coal. It's just, you know, why would you do that? It, it would be a crazy thing to do. But so, are you seeing enough investment in R&D so that's based on the current business model to make sure that make, to enable it to make the transition to what it needs to be. So are you seeing companies really using their kind of investment capital to think about their own business model to actually, actually tr transition towards a different kind of form which is going to be required in the next 10 years? I, I see many companies do that. I see okay. the leading companies do that. I see the, the forward-looking companies doing that. The companies with a long-term business strategy. And, you know, again, the word long-term is mentioned. One of the problems we have in the private sector, of course, is, you know, we are driven on many occasions for short-term results, you know, quarterly results. But we have to get past that, and we have to start looking at the, the long-term approach. Um, but one, one thing, and, and uh, it was Yvonne who mentioned it, you know, the fourth industrial revolution, that's exactly how we see this. And the other thing about the, the, the third, or the industrial, the third industrial, the, third, the industrial revolution was great in terms of labor productivity. It, it increased labor productivity by 10 times. If we're going to hit the Paris target, we have to increase carbon productivity by a factor of 10. 
Now, I don't see that happening anywhere. You know, other, we're not going to do that by reducing, just by reducing emissions. We have to do it, you know, energy efficiency is number one, alternative uh, sure. um, um, sources of energy, number two. But every single piece of carbon we use, we have to start getting a return on that carbon. And we have to look at carbon productivity as, in the same way as uh, Mayo, Feo, and Taylor looked at labor productivity if we're going to do that. So there's, there is nothing wrong, in my view, from taking carbon, from creating something, for example, a wind blade, and, and using that to save carbon emissions through the life of that product. Sure. You know, these, sure. These, now, how, how do we put a model in place that actually incentivizes the, the proper use of carbon. There's, I mean, carbon is demonized these days. You know, decarbonization, we hear the words all the time. It's a fantastic material. It is the material of life. And we've used it forever and ever. But we have to use it in a much better way because all we're doing at the moment is taking carbon and displacing it and putting it in the wrong place. If we put it in the right place, we can then save carbon and save the emissions. Well, I'd like, I mean, I won't not dwell on it now, but I'd like you to come back to it if we have time is... That, that central question of R&D, we have a really significant, you've you benefited from H2020. H2020 is being revised and reviewed with a new program. And what will be really interesting to understand is that actually given your experience and private sector experience of its use, how would you change it? Because actually, when we think about the pace that's required and the urgency of the situation, um, especially the, sta the statement you just made is carbon is a beautiful material. Um, what would you ha how would you design a an outcome for the new H2020? But I'll come back to you on that in a moment. Jill, can I turn to you in terms of um, leadership? I mean, you're part of the Prince of Wales um, leadership group and you're part of the We Mean Business Coalition. Um, Given what you've heard, I'm really interested in learning from you whether you, whether you sense that sense of urgency um, taking place amongst the kind of the coalition of leaders that you're interacting with. And what you think, is there a sense that actually we do need to step up a gear? Is there really that sense amongst leaders that you're, you're encountering? Um, well, firstly, I should say something about, despite its name, the Prince of Wales Corporate Leaders Group <laughs> is very much a European group. It was formed in the UK 12 years ago, um, and it was then a UK initiative where a lot of CEOs stood up and said, I think this climate change stuff is terribly important and we should do something about it. Um, but it's been in Europe for seven years, and post that fateful referendum, it made the decision to very much focus on European policy. Um, and many of the companies, including Philips and, and DSM, who've been mentioned, are members of the Corporate Leaders Group, we're also, as with the Climate Group, we are uh, one of the seven partners of the We Mean Business Coalition, which was formed in the run-up to Paris to make sure that business um, groupings didn't tread on each other's toes and actually had much more, more strategic focus in delivering on Paris. I, I personally have been working in the climate and energy space for a, all of this century um, in the UK government, at the European Commission, in an American think tank with California, in a, an industry that made coal boilers, used to, um, and now in the Prince of Wales Corporate Leaders Group. And I think it's worth us remembering just how far we have come in that period. So we may be dismayed by the turn of events in the United States, but we ought to remember that George W. was no friend of climate change action and that the first Obama administration was criticized for not making any headway at all on climate change. But what's happened in the meantime is where 
15, 10, 15 years ago, companies in the US saw talk of climate change as a threat. When Trump made his, his various pronouncements, companies in the United States have stood up and been counted about how they need to take action on climate change and how they want the US to do that. So I think that's a huge change. And as Richard said, 10 years ago, any uh, private sector person on this panel would have been shaking their head and talking about how difficult it was. And believe me, I used to negotiate with them um, on the introduction of the ETFs. Um, today, they're saying we want more and we want it faster. But it's not all companies, unfortunately, because not all companies have um, government affairs departments or sustainability departments. And we must remember that those here, it's very gratifying to see them here and that they are on the side and that they are looking for more action and I think actually have overtaken policymakers because the spanner in the works of this climate change unleashes the creativity that Richard has described and that was described uh, uh, earlier. But most companies actually do not have those departments and are not aware of this debate in any great way at all. They don't, they're not aware of how it impacts upon them. And one of the roles of the corporate leaders group is to harness the experience of our businesses in how they've started to tackle the issues uh, that face their particular industry. We're a cross-sectoral group, so they represent a wide variety of businesses across, across Europe. How they've started to tackle things like how do you use carbon in a, in, in a way that's beneficial? How do you change your business model so that you're not selling stuff, you're selling services, and your incentives are to make those services as efficient as possible? And to use them as spokespeople to encourage not only policymakers to put the right incentives in place at the right time, but also for other businesses to look to them to understand what the challenges are and what they need to be doing about it. And let's be quite clear that actually the opportunities are what makes all the difference. Five, ten years ago, India would be saying, um, you caused this problem, you sorted out common but differentiated responsibility. Today, India has an ambition to have got rid of fossil fuel cars by 2030 and massive amb ambition on the rollout of solar in India. Those are the opportunities. They see opportunities there. This is exactly what's happened with China. And one of the things that collaboration can do between the private sector and the public sector, and between the EU and China, the EU and India, India and China, is to learn from what works and what doesn't work so well and, and recognize that when we're tackling this problem, on the one hand, it unleashes enormous creativity. And on the other hand, we know, because we've experienced it, we take some missteps along the way and there are... Uh, unintended consequences. You can say the drive for diesel in the EU was one of those which we are ruining the day, but we also, the drive to move away from diesel is um, actually unleashing yet another wave of creativity and productivity, not just in vehicle manufacturers, battery manufacturers, but also again in the business services where you're looking at the sharing economy changing and solving some of these problems. So this is an opportunity that where the spanner in the works really does <clears throat> unleash new thinking in a way that creates this fourth industrial revolution sure. that can make our lives a lot better. So I'm an optimist. And all of you are, which is good. We all need to be. And I, I suppose my question to you is that um, it's good to look back and we know that the pace of change in terms of leadership has been quite significant, but so has the consequence of climate change. Okay? So there's something about the two are parallel in certain sense of actually the, the business case around us has increased, if you like. Um, if you were 
looking ahead to let's uh, the, the the kind of the review of of the Paris Agreement and the next steps. Given what you know now, given where you've been and what you sense as a temperature around leaders, what would you be saying that needs to be changed? Well, we in need the to we need to step up ambition. But if you look at what's happened, most targets are superseded. You know, we ex we go beyond most, not all. But most of this stuff has turned out to be easier to do once we put our minds to it. But we know we, we don't have money. We, the, the, what, what's required in terms of investment year on year, we have no, there's a huge distance in terms of what's required in terms of investment to actually get us to a certain point. It, it depends on how you look at this. Yeah. Because if, you, if you're going to replace, replace a power plant anywhere in the world, and it's quite right, who, despite what President Trump may say, who in their right mind is going to invest in new coal today? They just wouldn't. So you're, you're not. It's, so the investment that you need, say, in renewables, is not additional. It's instead of, and you would be investing in something else anyway. You look at the subsidies that go currently to fossil fuels, and you transfer those subsidies to renewables or to new technologies. And that is not. That's not an additional cost. It's a. It's a shifting of the cost. So we need to think of it in that way. And there are huge mm. cost savings. I mean, an awful lot of this. There are. There are. The, the big challenges we face is that there are winners and losers in the transition. Mm -hmm. That some industries will disappear and some industries will grow. Um, and the, the challenge for business is to look at what's happening and to try and bet on the winners. The challenge for governments is to try and remain neutral but set a really strong direction. One of the things that's happened over the last 10 to 15 years is our ambition used to be quite modest because we didn't think anybody would do it. Mm. And believe me, within government in Europe, we, you know, it, was, it was a struggle. We tried to be as ambitious as possible. We know that what was pledged in Paris was not enough, but we also know that many of those countries that that have put forward pledges mm. are taking action for the first time. Sure. And our experience is, is once you take action, you start unleashing that creativity that makes it easier, that makes the opportunities greater. All of that makes sense when you've got time on your hands. And I go back to my point that, you know... We have that no time. We, you know, you feel that we have got time? Well, of course we have no time. We, no and time, one, exactly. One, one yeah, of yeah. the things that we need to do is we need to make sure that, that um, you know, I'm, I'm from the UK, though happily Irish now. Um, <laughs> okay. um, but one of the things that the UK did do was put in place the Climate Change Act, and we've had discussion about the importance of, of climate change acts, which mm. set back in 2008 set its target as an 80% reduction on 1990 Indeed. by 2050. Indeed. Indeed. What is clear is that actually what business need to hear is that needs to be net zero. We need mm. to go to net zero by mid-century. And if you give people a target of an 80% reduction, they think they're going to keep the 20% that's left. Precisely, um, yes. So we need to be absolutely clear about where we're going so, and how Jill, quickly. Are you, where, are you, where do you sit? More regulation or less regulation? As you look ahead... I, um, I think what, what I see when I talk to companies, regulation kicks them off, particularly if they've not been thinking about it. And we're recognizing that there's a top tier that are doing creative, wonderful things, but we probably need a bit of regulation for other tiers. Once you've got that... A variated approach. You, you do get that creativity where business starts to overtake. What they need more than anything else, actually, is clear signals, not regulation, is they need every government, every party saying, net zero, net zero, net zero. Okay. That's where you're going. All right. Thank you. Thank you all. I'm going to open it up and give these lovely people an opportunity to raise any questions or queries that you may have. Um, before you do, if I to say to all of you, it would be really helpful, no rhetorical speeches and, you know, 
I believe X, Y, and Z. This is about a debate and discussion. So I'd really, really help me to ask questions or just make a short comment. That would be helpful. Say who you are. There should be a mic coming your way. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Peter Wojcik. I'm with CEFIC, the European Chemical Industry, so a colleague of, uh, also of Covestro. I was wondering whether um, it is true that nobody in his right mind uh, invests in coal, because I believe every week there is a coal power station is being opened in China. Uh, on the other hand, um, I wonder whether also it is true there are losers and winners when the... the um, result of policies we have in Europe could lead to investment in China, but that we then export emissions and, and import the goods and import the emissions in the end, like UK did since 1990, I believe. UK can say you have reduced your carbon uh, emissions in the UK by 20%, but you have at this, in the same period imported goods that have a, a carbon footprint of 20% plus. So you have basically, what have you achieved? Thank so you. The question no, is... What's your point? What are you trying to is, say to, uh, as yeah, a result of that? Is, um, is, uh, is the model that China is, is that the, uh, the example for Europe? Like, do we need a command and control uh, situation? Um, uh, or is then a democracy in the way of uh, climate policy? Thank you. Okay. Right. Oh, good. Excellent. Loads of hands up. This is what we need. So, gentlemen here, and then the two gentlemen over there. And we. And can I just encourage? Ah, we have women in the audience also. Thank you very much. Good to ask questions. Excellent. Good morning, Thomas Novak, European Heat Pump Association. But uh, it's more. Say that again. The European Heat Pump Association. So we, we have one of the solution sets for, for this climate transition, but that's not my question. Okay. The question is, uh, we have talked a lot about, and you have presented a lot about uh, cooperation and helping each other. And I would like to understand what the panel thinks about how to overcome the not invented here syndrome. Because I think a lot of people may want to develop these ideas themselves. So how do we channel advice in a commoditable way? Do you have your own view about that? You said we should be short. <laughs> That's very good. Yourself, gentleman here in the, in the beige jacket, and then the gentleman there back. I will, be, I will be coming back to you. You can't get away with that. Go on, go on. Morning, Dranda. Um, on the point of regulation, I just would like to iterate and remind us all that we cannot regulate physics. I very much like the question of the first gentleman, and I'm looking forward to the answer, particularly of our Chinese guest, and Yvonne, because I think we all have a chip on our shoulder when we talk about the decoupling. I mean, we even had the vice president uh, presenting at the European Business Summit saying that Europe is successful in decoupling, and exactly as the gentleman just said, the reason for the reduction of CO2 emissions mm. in Europe is the massive offshoring of energy-intensive industries to China. But Mercedes and Peugeot are still made of steel, only they're not made by Krupp in Essen, but they're brought in from China. So the question is, is there not a need for true energy and carbon statistics so that we don't fool ourselves? I completely agree with the statements about the need for a sense of urgency, but I think there's also a need for a sense of reality. Do you and mean, do you, if I can, are you saying that we need greater transparency of the data that tells us about what's actually going on? Is that your point? Well, it's more inclusion of proper data. Of course, transparency is good, but I mean, the European Union is not taking into account that the 
steel sheet production in China, the CO2 emissions for the steel sheet intended for Europe should be added to European CO2 emissions. The fact that it doesn't take place in Europe does not mean that it is not part of GDP. So what I mean is we are deluding ourselves if we think we are successful in decoupling. We're way less successful. I'm very happy that we got somebody from the industry out there. You know economy is about resource transformation. And if I make a second object instead of a first one, the resource transformation is more or less the same. And that brings me to the second question to our Chinese guest. You said we should think about how to grow our economy differently. How can you grow resource transformation on a finite planet? Should the question not be, how can we grow our well-being differently, but not the economy and not the resource use? And I think it would be very wise, both for Europe and Japan, to actually get a sense of reality about carbon emissions. Okay. Challenging comments there. Okay, we'll come back to you. Uh, and I'm sure not just Chunghua, because I think it's not Chunghua's responsibility to represent China here uh, at all. Um, we all have our own experiences and our, our relationships also too. Gentlemen there. Okay. Uh, thank you. Taylor uh, Kupfer from BT, British Telecom. I mean, uh, on the panel, you, you touched a little bit also on the question, what, what's actually holding Europe back when it comes to new innovation to put them on the market? And uh, Richard Northcote, you said uh, there are already established industries. And so I was wondering whether you could maybe elaborate a little bit more on that point and also what would be the way out so that uh, new technologies actually get implemented faster in Europe and not just in, in China. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm just going to... I'll come back to those who had your... I will come to you, but given there's kind of quite chunky and weighty uh, issues there, do you, do you want to comment, I mean, on that, on that decoupling issue? And, you know, whether, or, or I can turn to you, Yvonne, about that. Uh, but, but either, what's your, what's your take on it? Um, I think that there is a genuine point about we measure production uh, rather than consumption. Mm -hmm. And I think that does distort. But it also belies the fact that there's a huge amount of climate legislation in China to reduce China's emissions. Um, and that's happening throughout the world now. So carbon leakage, where would you go? There's not that many places left in the world where you would move your, your industry offshore to avoid uh, carbon constraints. So it is, it's a transitional problem, but I agree that we would have been smarter if we could have done carbon consumption. And I think the reason we didn't do carbon consumption was at the time that we were putting all of these things in place, it was very, very difficult to measure. So we went with something pragmatic rather than perfect. Um, I, think, I, think, you know, I, I think that's probably... The other point about new technologies and how to incentivize them is there's an awful lot that we haven't been able to tackle it here in Europe on our carbon emissions and in particular the emissions from buildings. Um, and again, there is plenty of opportunity for industries there as we start to tackle, and it will probably be regulations not just on our very, very tiny new building stock that we have in Europe, but how to retrofit safely um, our, uh, our buildings in Europe. Um, so there's, and agriculture as well, obviously. That's, again, a huge, a huge area of uh, emissions that we haven't really tackled very, very significantly at the moment. So, that, you know, on the one hand, yes, there is more that can be done. We could measure it better, um, and that might be, might be more realistic. I do think there has been a decoupling anyway, despite that. I think, you know, we have become more efficient, um, which is good news. Yvonne. The myth of decoupling, but also the point that's made about the type of democracy 
or you know state intervention or state-run um, um, uh, approaches. Um, you know, do we? What's your view on on that particular issue in terms of how we both make the data? not make the data up, but how we use the data, uh, but also whether the decoupling thing is, as has been described from the audience. Thanks. Um, when I was listening to the interventions, I felt that this was a bit getting a bit, you know, uh, antagonistic, because you can always, and I think Jill already said, I mean, the perfect is the enemy of the good. Yes, we can go back and say, well, they are not doing as much as we are. We have to acknowledge that economic uh, positions of different countries are in different stages. And we can say, oh, well, they're not doing as much. It's exactly where we were before the Obama administration saying, well, you know, China isn't doing enough. Well, they are on the track of doing a lot of things. And if we're not careful, we will lose out. And we see it in many areas, in fact, that they are bypassing, you know, European industry. And I think this is what is happening. The realization in Europe today is that we better be in the lead because this is the cutting edge and this is the transition we're going through and if we then want to focus on data about consumption sure you can talk about carbon embedded in products you can talk about uh, environmental standards for other pollution you can talk about social aspects in those countries we can talk about all of that we can say oh well it's not fair you know they're not doing it exactly the way uh, they're doing it in europe we can talk about democracy sure it's not being all democratic and i mean i think we've had many discussions in the past when we were talking about the industry in Europe, say, would you rather prefer a command and control approach? And of course they say no, and I don't think this is what Europe is all about, which is also why it doesn't become perfect, because it's a democracy and we talk about what is the best way to do things. So frankly, for me, this is a bit of a, you know, I don't know how to put it politely, but a bit of a distraction. It's relevant, it's not that it's not relevant, and, and we can talk about that when we have our free trade agreements, you know, how do we converge and we take the state of the art um, technologies and frankly I think this is what is happening when you do an investment in those economies as well you put state-of-the-art technology in so I mean I, I just think this is a debate which is not very fruitful and uh, I'd rather concentrate indeed on the optimistic side which we have on the panel which is all about you know how do we bring to the market those technologies that are there Europe is in the lead and let's export those opportunities rather than keep you know uh, telling the others are not doing enough sure and I, mean, I don't want to come back to this but you you can't I mean there is something about what people in the audience have asked about not ducking the real issues here uh, without um, actually trying to uh, apportion blame or suggest that actually we need this kind of democracy versus that. There's a something about not ducking the issues, but let's come back to that in a moment. Uh, but if uh, you allow me, I mean, I don't think it's ducking the question at no? all. It is about a service, indeed, more economy, service-based economy versus an industrial economy. And those are choices that people need to make. It is about a transition. Where are we heading as a planet? And I mean, those countries, and I'm interested to see, I mean, China is also interested to head in that direction. But of course, we're not all at the same speed. And that's exactly what I kind of, uh, think it's a shame to say we're ducking the question. No, we're not ducking the question at all. If we want to spend another 10 years looking at the data, fine. You know, and in the meantime, we will have been overtaken by others. Well said. Okay. Chunghua, um, do you want to respond to any of the issues that have been raised in relation to China? Thank you. Just uh, let me start with a little bit, a couple of clarities, actually. One, uh, the one co-power plant actually opened every week. That's already old, uh, uh, sort of outdated information. Today, if you look at China, that's not the case. I just want to clarify that. Uh, second, uh, responding to the gentleman who said, actually, rather than called growth and uh, actually well-being, I totally agree with you. I think a part of the struggle is uh, th that sort of language is already in the Chinese top, you know, sort of national policies, whatever. We call it like ecological civilization. You know, we have to look into deeper into the, you know, uh, man and 
and the nature relationship, whatever. The reason I still use a sort of a growth in a way because politically, uh, you know, everywhere job creation is really among the top priority. So you sort of, you know, when you com communicate it to the broader society, somehow this growth, job opportunity, whatever, still sort of sells, whatever. So, but uh, I, in principle, I totally agree with you. Um, the second point, actually, uh, about uh, this is sort of a China, EU, you, you transfer this industry to China. Um, I think my suggestion would be you need to look at things in perspective and also in process rather than say this point in history. If you look at China's opening up in the last four decades also, we went exactly as you said actually. We opened up, we didn't really have much. The country was poor, there was no industry, barely any you know, good infrastructure. So we opened the door, we welcomed everyone coming in. And that created the opportunity for many of your outdated heavy industries actually coming to China. So that has been the case. But today, actually, if you look at uh, the reality, the, the, the space, actually, room for that is getting smaller and smaller, shrinking very, very quickly, because the country has decided to transition. Transition, if I use Jeremy Rifkin's term, from the second industrial revolution to the third, or you call the fourth, whatever, to the new one. Uh, meaning, it is painful, there is a cost incurred, uh, probably you do not see much from this part of the world. Mm. If you look at how many factories, including power plants, have been closed up, creating yeah. job losses, whatever. Mm. So the country has decided to bear the pain and also bear the cost to transition. This is not an easy journey at all. But somehow, depending on which side you look, if you look at it really continuing the sort of a negative part, probably you, you were stuck with the mindset. Set. But if you look at on the sort of faster moving side, probably you started to have more hope. Thank you very much for that, and, and well said. Um, there were a couple of hands up at the, the gentleman there, in the, and the gentleman with the beard yeah. there, and then the lady, the lady there with the glasses. Um, good Brief, morning. though, yes. please. Uh, Andrea Ticke, uh, European Commission. I work at, I am in charge of uh, climate research, and I represent the union at the IPCC. And I guess that uh, uh, it has to be said that probably from what I heard from some uh, interventions, the concept uh, of uh, the last report of the IPCC, the most important concept, is that there is a budget of uh, fossil CO2 that beyond which we cannot go. Therefore, I guess that th this should give really the sense of urgency and the fact that we have today to work towards investments and very rapid investments towards zero carbon solutions. No more low carbon in the sense that to, in the future we have to go towards the use of carbon because it's essential carbon for our life, but from renewable sources and not from fossil uh, sources. To reuse carbon from uh, uh, fossil fuel use it's not a way. It only delays few days or few months. Indeed, they, they, but your question, sir, is that just yeah, a comment the, you the want to leave? The question is, uh, um, what is the, the, the so the, the the true commitment towards the zero carbon uh, so, um, solutions has okay. to be. I'll probably come to you that as a kind of final commentary. We'll have to be like sixty seconds each. Gentleman here in the beard, yeah, and I will. I've, I'm running out of time, so I have to apologize in advance if I can't take you all. As you know, I've already got, crashed into your coffee break, so be patient with me. Sorry. This is uh, Shamsuddin from VOB University. Uh, the biggest uh, challenge is the trust in climate change issue so far. Uh, 
I mean, uh, uh, as uh, Mr. Trump said, I, I, I'm not a believer in man-made uh, global mm -hmm. warming. It is cooler, it is warmer, it's cold weather. So, I mean, uh, and since that, we, we have seen that, uh, yes, U.S. is intended to pull off from this uh, Paris climate change. Uh, so the reason, uh, uh, the question is, uh, why should other, I mean the states, other state, poor state or low-income states, and the citizens of uh, Europe or public, for uh, for instance, should believe that the corporate sector will resolve the global warming issue? Okay, thank you. Thank you for that, lady there. Thank you, Sarah Stefanini with Politico. Um, sorry, just to say that again. Sorry, Sarah Stefanini with Politico. Um, my question is mainly for Yvonne and Marcel um, about the COP23 upcoming summit and whether the EU has always been a leader on the negotiations of the Paris Agreement, standing by the agreement after um, Trump pulled out. But now the, the conversation has moved on to actually implementing the agreement. And it comes at a time when the EU is also under criticism for weakening um, climate policies, at least the council side is trying to weaken things. Um, you know, Germany is on track to miss its emissions, um, even though it's got the Energiewende, uh, Poland's the next presidency. So I just wonder whether you feel that there will be more pressure at the COP23 to show what you're actually doing and ramp up um, efforts. Okay, and the last two comments. Gentleman in the stripey, yes, and that gentleman there. The stripey top, and then the gentleman there. Sorry? Stop being good, good yeah. gentlemen to each other. Okay, just I'll, take I'll the just mic. Go. I'll just go. I mean, you're <laughs> pointing at uh, colleagues. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, I'm Luke Bass, and I'm the director for Europe in, uh, for IUCN. I've got a very simple question, actually. We know that in the OECD countries, fossil fuel subsidies are still going up. This is unbelievable, but it's a fact. So my question to the panel is, what do you think are the main reasons that this is still happening and that if we talk of a shift, it's more first talking about let's at least platform those subsidies. Why don't we even get there? That's my question. Okay. And last but not least, sorry. Hi, I'm Sajid Kumar. I'm the founder of Change Partnership. Uh, interesting conversation, but I think you're missing the elephant in the room, which is that most of the Western world is developed, and their objective... So can you just speak slower, so we can, I, I, I can hear you properly? I don't want to miss oh, what okay. you're saying. Okay, I will try very slowly, sorry. Um, the problem we have at the moment is in the Western world, the developed world, much of the fossil fuel infrastructure is already built. In developing countries, they are building out new systems, so it's easier for them to transition to clean technologies. The problem for Europe, therefore, is, is how do you break the vested interest of incumbents and the, the, the myth of carbon leakage? Once you unlock that, Europe can grow. There's huge business opportunities, and it's the only way to save the politics of climate change. But are you, what's the elephant in the room? Is it the, 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 the fact that we're ignoring the market that's about to emerge no, no, no. elsewhere? The, or what? the elephant in the room is, is that when it comes to legislating or regulating or even having a conversation about climate change, we end up talking about the negative competitiveness impacts such as carbon leakage, such as, as we heard earlier, corporations moving to China, mm -hmm. when it's factually not true. Mm -hmm. So what we need to do is just to hammer home and realise that a lot of that myth about corporations fleeing is just not true. And the moment we have that honest discussion, you'll find that we can actually move to much higher climate targets. We can deep dive much deeper in terms of creating markets for clean technologies. 
But if the politics doesn't have that question, answer that question, we get nowhere. Okay. Um, I'm hideously running out of time. So I'm going to ask each of you, just like for a very short response to some of the issues that have been raised. So again, starting with you, Yvonne, do you want to kick off, please? Thanks. I think it's actually bringing us to a nice uh, close of the discussion. I mean, mm. the gentleman who talked about trust, I think this is uh, the absolute key to progress. Uh, it is what helped forge the Paris Agreement, and we need to keep it alive. And this is what will also be the main, uh, the main uh, objective for COP23. So, of course, Europe will showcase what we're doing. I do take the point that, you know, when there is negotiations ongoing on how to implement all this in legislation, people have their positions, people have their concerns. But I think that is a translation, again, of, of the change, you know, of the transition. And, and this is, to some extent, fair. I do also take the point that the fossil fuel subsidies are a bit of a, you know, a strange animal in all this, and we need to move away from those. But it is, again, a token of how do you get those companies to, to enter into a constructive agenda um, and, and to tackle that change? And what does it mean in terms of job losses? So, again, if we can do that for, in, on the one hand in Europe and then to take that discussion again with our partners in other countries, and I think we're doing that in a very interesting uh, way with China and others, this is exactly how we can together kind of get there. And, and again, focusing on the opportunities, yes, the hardships, we will need to face them. And I think, okay. again, I was thinking before, all of the European countries have had pain as well in, in going into this transition. Huh? And that's exactly where we can say, look, it doesn't come without pain, but it does come with opportunities. And let's work together to, to take those rather than, you know, only get stuck in invested interests indeed. Because, I mean, that is where we need to work together. Trust at government level, trust with uh, working together with the non-state uh, actors and in particular the private sector. Okay. Marcel? Thank you. I think many of the questions, also in the previous round, uh, without even saying so, underscored the importance of international cooperation. And uh, that is what's going to happen in, uh, in Bonn in a few weeks' time as well. Uh, the world sits together again to, uh, to talk about ambition. Um, and I, I have a slightly different take on the question on, uh, on trust. Yes, indeed, trust is, uh, is very important in all of this. Uh, trust in governments, trust in, in corporations, but not necessarily trust in uh, science. I think we move beyond that. And, and this uh, debate today showed that we, we didn't spend a minute on the question why. Uh, we are talking about the how. And, that, that is, um, and that's not only in a room uh, like this. That, that I think... Uh, is broader uh, and, and, and is sinking in, into society. People are seeing it with their own eyes. The real danger of uh, the federal level, and I deliberately put it that way, the federal level in the United States uh, stepping out is not in uh, the denial of what climate science is telling us. It is in moving away from that international cooperation agenda. Uh, because, and, and that is why I mentioned all the, the questions on, on carbon leakage, on, on things like that. Uh, if you solve it in your own country, uh, you're not there uh, because uh, the problem is, is a global one. And especially when you live in a small country like mine, mm. uh, you, you can't stop air pollution, but it's just uh, coming in with the wind from neighboring countries. So you have to do it together. Uh, and, and if you're not doing that, you're not coming, uh, coming anywhere. Um, so on, on the question of COP23, so it's, it's really our uh, aim to, uh, to keep the, the ambition as high as possible and, and uh, work together with other countries to, uh, to do that, um, but also trying to make that concrete because um, if you put it on paper or if you, you keep on repeating it, 
um, you're not there. It's, it's in the action. And that is uh, something that we have to const constantly uh, showcase and prove, uh, not as governments alone, but with all the, uh, the other actors that are at the table as well. And uh, that is what we, uh, what we try to do in, uh, uh, in, in BOM, because we know that um, action comes and ambition comes at a cost. Uh, but low ambition comes at a higher cost because then we push on the, that bill to uh, later generations. All right. Chungwa, again, I'm going to have to ask you all to be sure. pretty brave because these people are desperate for their coffee. Sure. Whilst they're interested in what you have to say, all of Quick. you have to say also. Thank you. Quickly, three points. One on trust. I agree with you that it's, it's already been recognized as a major challenge, even though Trump's decision did not derail the international process, but somehow that's exacerbating uh, the overall crisis about the trust. So I think that's a very important uh, question for both the government and the business community to keep in mind. The second point, the gentleman mentioned about infrastructure, maturity. You, you know, you seem to be not having as much uh, opportunity as developing countries. We're literally building up new stuff like that. I tend to disagree with that uh, because even though with the current infrastructure already built, uh, with the new technologies, you know, uh, digitalization, artificial intelligence, whatever, you have the opportunity actually just as much as develop, developing countries to really transform your infrastructure to become more smart and also uh, more efficient. And the last point to add is more like back to the EU-China collaboration and cooperation. I see, I want to highlight the four things actually to leave uh, to you here. Uh, the first one, I think a policy, I think a pricing on carbon has already been agreed as, you know, sort of a top of the agenda on the bilateral front. And secondly, is really designing or redesigning everything, taking advantage of the new technologies around the infrastructure, around the industrial facilities, around the products and services there that offers huge opportunities. The third one is financing. China is already greening its financial system and, you know, combining with the EU's sort of agenda, I think we could really play a big role. The last one is really education. I think human talents collaboration becomes the, the biggest opportunity you do not want to miss. That could potentially address a lot of challenges we're talking about here today, and that offers more sort of talents and innovation potential for a better future. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Wow. Um, <laughs> how to follow that? Uh, I think, I mean, the number one point is this is a global issue. It is not a European issue. It is not a Chinese issue. If there's going to be carbon pricing, it needs to be consistent across the planet. We cannot have, you know, no price in one place or high price in another because that will shift industry around and that's not what we want to achieve. Uh, so that's number one. And I hope COP23 leads us towards uh, more uh, specific goals when, when, when that comes around. I think when it comes to the question about incentivizing innovation or funding innovation is one thing. How do you get it implemented? This is critical. I really believe it's critical, and I think there has to be some way that you, there is a negotiation entered into between public sector and private sector. If we're going to innovate, what does it actually mean? Mm. You know, coming up with that innovation, breaking that technology, creating the dream chemistry is fantastic. There has to be a prize at the end of it, and a prize for everybody. Now, for me, legislation does not drive innovation. Demand drives innovation. Market demand. We need to create market demand and incentivize markets in order to, to pull in this innovation. That's different uh, from uh, putting in legislation or penalizing. A carbon tax is not a good idea. A carbon incentive on productivity is a good idea. Okay. I'm sure we'll come back to this in the third session, actually. But 
Um, well, I suppose th this is really, there is no one single solution for all of this. We know that. Indeed. And we also know that we need to learn as we go along. We make some mistakes along the way. They're all well-intentioned, but nevertheless, they are occasionally mistakes. Business need to work with governments to help them get over those mistakes and show what does actually work. And governments need to work with each other to, again, share that good experience. But this, this is a journey. One of the things that's really, really changed in the last, in this century that helps us is the development to, of IT, digitalization, the amount of information we can get, how we can measure and monitor things. It's really helping us. We should be harnessing that for our own good mm -hmm. and to move this debate forward rather than getting stuck in grooves which don't help us get anywhere. Thank you. Thank you all. And um, just to say, I'm sorry I've eaten into your coffee break. I hope you found this um, stimulating. Uh, as, as ever, Friends of Europe, we, we try and kind of help you connect the dots of the issues, debate the right points and think about the kind of changes we need to put into place. One thing that does occur to me by way of conclusion is that I hope that we get beyond some of this rhetorical discussion and kind of repetitive discussion and actually move to something which enables us to have either at a state or regional or global level some sort of climate change dashboard. We actually need a climate change dashboard that helps us navigate, predict and actually have foresight rather than simply stumbling into um, some of these scenarios but something for us to think about. Thank our speakers in the usual manner. Thank you very much for being responsive.